0: But Atolia hadn't had merely a political loss in mind. If she'd wanted Edis to be without the thief's services, she could have executed him. She meant to hurt Edis at every level, and she had succeeded. Welcome to the first day of the rest of your life.
1: I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Aetolian Archives, a Queen's Thief read-along podcast. We take you chapter by chapter back through fantasy's most underrated series. Happy New Year, everybody! It's January 13th, 2019, which means that the return of the thief is in 65 days. That's barely two months. When the thief was published, we were toddlers. And by the time that guy finally
0: returns, I'll be 25. He took the long way around. Round to what? There's the rub. This episode, we're discussing the Queen of Atolia*, Chapter 4, in which Helen is pissed, Jen is mostly unconscious, and Galen is just trying to help. While meanwhile, back in Atolia, Irene hasn't made a facial expression in three weeks.
1: She's just sitting there, but like, tragically.
0: So tragically.
1: So Atolia sends Jen back to Edith in a litter, like you would carry a very wealthy person on, and... The first part of this chapter is from Helen's perspective, and it says that the litter reminds her of a cage, which I think is so cool, because it's this expensive, beautiful object made to carry an Aetolian noble, but Jen is trapped there, and that foreshadows how he will
0: feel trapped in the future in this gilded cage of kingship in the Aetolian palace. Also, maybe Atolia is trying to be, like, ironic. Oh, yeah. She's... (laughs) Everything about this is, as we've been saying from the beginning of this book, so theatrical. And it's... uh, She's trying to hurt Edith in every way. Like, this is just another, like, jab. Not only is she injuring him and making him suffer, but then she's also kind of mocking him.
1: Yeah, yeah. Another slap in the face
0: to Helen. And on that note, the... Atolian, who is in charge of bringing Jen home, makes the first-hand joke in canon, although we've been making many more here. Which, like, man after my own heart,
1: (laughs) but also how dare you.
0: (laughs) And, like, that takes a lot of guts to walk into enemy territory, surrounded by people who care about this person who you just cut the hand off, and say, he'll need a hand getting out. Yeah, he
1: just, he can't resist. And the other guy chokes on a laugh, like that. It just
0: comes out of his mouth. And then they realize, like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe we were sent on this job because uh, the captain doesn't care if we don't come back. (laughs) Died for the punchline.
1: Do you think... All right, this is a little bit of a tangent, but if if uh, if Eugenides lived in modern times, would he have a Vine account? And if he lived in in twenty seventeen, I guess, and what would it be like? I
0: definitely think he's a very Vine person. <laughs> there would be he would have been one of those kids that was like the What do you have? A knife? <laughs> <laughs> Did did you see the post on Tumblr maybe like two or three weeks ago that was someone um, talking about different vines that fit the series? <laughs> no, and, oh my gosh. Oh, I'm gonna try and find it. I know I I commented on it, and I was thinking of the one where um, those two girls <laughs> are driving in a car, and you see the driver is like sucking her face and trying not to laugh, and the other one is eating frozen yogurt, and she slaps the brakes. <laughs> and- <laughs> <laughs> Makes the girl like inhale her spoon, and the girl goes, "Lauren." <laughs> I felt that was a very Jen and Sophos thing to do. Yeah. Like I don't know how you would translate that for this. It wouldn't work in fifteen hundreds Byzantine era, Atolio. but if we're doing a modern AU, that's very Jen.
1: But back, back to the depressing. Transitioning part of back this to being story. sad. <laughs> This is like, so emotionally affecting, yeah. especially the moment when they bring him back and he's taken out of the litter and he's unconscious and Galen, which is another name that we don't <laughs> pronounce the same way, he, he goes to pick Jen up and the Minister of War steps in and he gathers Jen into his arms. That's his son.
0: Yeah. His youngest. And he's a
1: child still. Yeah. Which... She goes out of her way to remind you in this chapter, I think. He's repeatedly called the boy and young man.
0: Mm -hmm. And I would also say that this chapter is way more emotional than the previous chapter in which he actually loses the hand because that's Mm -hmm. just the event and this is like the fallout. It's sinking in now, Mm -hmm. the reality. And Jen asks Gallen, do you think that if people are crippled in this life, they are crippled in the afterlife as well? And then Galen answers, you would know that better than I. And Noel, you mm-hmm. pointed out earlier how this must mean that Jen already has a reputation as someone who's close to the divine or supernatural. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, which intensifies his separation from other people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think one of the reasons that this chapter is, is so emotional is because before he was away from home, he was in Anatolia, and all these terrible things were happening, and now he's back home much like he was back home at the end of the thief but this time
0: it's different home won't be the same again mm-hmm. so this chapter really introduces the theme of disability which is a big theme in this entire series and something uh, significant we notice about this um is that atolia and Edith and even jen are all kind of reacting to this as if losing a hand is worse than being dead. Which, I mean, arguably, Jen is definitely suffering more than he would have been if he had just been hanged. But it also kind of speaks to maybe the idea that a life as someone who's disabled or has a disability is not worth living in a lot of able-bodied people's lives. Mm-hmm. Which, I don't know if what we're seeing here with those characters' viewpoints is exactly that point of view. Like, But I think that's definitely... Like, that attitude really does exist in our own world.
1: Yeah, and it's a combination of... I mean, having his hands and and, and use of his hands was very important to Jen individually, and it was important to what he does. And throughout The Thief, he's very worried about protecting his hands and potential injury to his hands. And so it's something that's particularly difficult for Jen to deal with because the loss of his hand Represents or implies a loss of something about himself Mm -hmm. because he can't do the things that were most important to him in particular But it also definitely speaks to a larger attitude towards disability, which we'll see even more intensely in the King of Atolia, where mm-hmm. people make assumptions about Jen that are based on ableism that don't even make sense. Like, oh, he can't fight anybody. Like, he has a razor sharp <laughs> hook on the end of his arm.
0: <laughs> He's literally armed at all times. Yeah. So the fact that this adjustment from not having a disability to having a disability is the linchpin of this entire book, mm-hmm. and arguably even to this entire series, has always been one of the reasons that this is my favorite series of all time because you see that almost nowhere else in the YA lit that i've read or like you see disability but then it's literally immediately fixed like i was just reading a book uh the girl she's in a fantasy world um she loses her arm because it's turned to paper and then ripped off Mm -hmm. and then she has five seconds to adjust and then Her best friend says, like, oh, we need to just find a painter and get him to paint your arm back. And that's what happens.
1: Yeah. So... Which is such a stark contrast between Jen begging the gods for his hand back in this, and they refuse because you can't go backwards. Right. You can
0: only go forward. And it was really valuable to me to see, like, the adjustment period because uh, that really does reflect a lot of disabled people's experiences who become disabled later in life. Like, personally... I have a blind eye, but I've had that since birth, so that's not really my experience, but uh, representation is just so important, and we just... The fact that this is such realistic, in my mind, representation has always been very important. It represents the complexity of the experience. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't cheapen the experience. It yeah. doesn't It doesn't come with any ableist attitudes in the actual writing. I think it's just done very well. And Megan Wayland-Turner has talked about how on this
1: particular point she was very influenced by Eagle of the Ninth. Yeah. And how the main character in that book having a a mobility issue, I think?
0: Yeah. He was was a soldier and he was looking forward to the rest of his life as a soldier. And then he gets injured uh, to such a point that he can no longer be a soldier. And he has to adjust to his entire plan for his life being destroyed. Yeah, and she said that
1: that made such a big impression on her as a kid because she realized that a person didn't have to be totally able-bodied to be the hero of an adventure story. And we see that with multiple characters. I think this moment, or this linchpin in this book, is particularly mirrored by uh, Sophos at the beginning of A Conspiracy of Kings in the more general sense of your body being irrevocably changed. Sophos doesn't become disabled, but he will never look the same. Mm-hmm. Like he'll never look in the mirror and see the same person. And that is both a symbol of what he's experiencing internally, the change that he's going through in his personality, in his position in life, and related to a larger theme of... Like, you are... Your your body is physically affected by what mm-hmm. you go through. And that's something to understand and accept rather
0: than think of as a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, his change in appearance, those injuries are also something that really affect how other people mm-hmm. see him after yeah. that. And these physical changes neither turn these
1: characters into tragedies nor... Make them into superheroes, mm-hmm. which are kind of the the two opposing tropes that you see so often. Right. They remain complex
0: individuals who are at the center of the narrative. Mm-hmm. So, on a somewhat related note, when Gent's recovering, it says, The rest of his body hurt so badly he couldn't be sure where the pain was from. And then, two pages later, when he's having nightmares or hallucinating from fever, it says, his screams sounded as if they were dragged out of him with a hook. I can, p- I can
1: hear that so clearly.
0: Something I picked up on in this reading that I've never realized before is... So, in the previous chapter, when he gets his hand cut off, he doesn't make any noise. hmm So, where are these screaming nightmares from? But then, in King of Atolia, you find out that Relius tortured him. After he got his hand cut off. So that must be what these screams are from. Just to make... This is a book for children. I, I know. Or marketed for children, maybe. Right? Like <laughs> the marketing team's fault.
1: And when it's... this when this book was published, they were still putting it in the 8 to 12 age range. Mm. This was a middle grade novel. Now they've got wise and put it in, in, in <laughs> YA. For the teens, who are edgy. But... <laughs>
0: They were giving this to, to fifth graders. And Yudis' narration uh, says in this chapter that she always only worried about Jen when he was quiet. And, like, now Jen has passed a point with pain where he has to scream and he's not quiet anymore. And, oh. Ooh. Ooh. and that's, I think it's in the first chapter of this book that a thief
1: never makes a sound by accident. And so I think that's related to him feeling completely lost and yeah. uh, like he's been disconnected from his identity. We get that tidbit about Edith only worrying about Jen when he was quiet in a sort of light-hearted flashback where she's thinking about when he used to get beat up by his cousins and how he would steal stuff from everybody and he stole her necklace cuz it was hideous and it was the only way to stop her from wearing it and that's a nice a nice respite in the middle of this chapter of
0: screaming yeah and crying the contrast between this lighthearted interlude and what's really happening in the present just makes it like more jarring yeah but even the 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 lighthearted flashback has real violence in it yeah, I mean, you think
1: about oh, you know, he got bullied by his cousins when he was a kid, like maybe they pushed him. But no, apparently, like, they beat him up. They broke two of his
0: ribs one time. Yeah. That's and, intense. And they're described as periodic fights that happened all the time. Disastrously losing battles. But it's also uh said that no one felt too bad for Jen because it was clear that he was anything but a helpless victim like he was kind of bringing it on himself because he was taunting his cousins too and he was stealing things from him but like i mean okay all of those things set aside it's it's telling that everyone else's reaction is just kind of like well yeah okay like this violence is completely acceptable yes it's normal like that's a normal way to <laughs> to regulate his behavior like, like of course you can just beat him up that's okay and they do
1: it weirdly out of loyalty to the minister of war yeah and you know like jen's dad is a tough guy but i don't think he's like yeah like kick him in the ribs <laughs> especially ooh, when we see how much he cares <laughs> and so this was all happening like yeah. I'm, helen knew about it because she was a peer and probably it was part of the larger gossip of the court. Like, oh, great, Eugenity's got himself into trouble again. But there wasn't a lot of like you couldn't go tell your parent, I guess, because yeah. it would be maybe um, like wimpy.
0: Yeah, Addis' narration says like, oh, numerous eager tattletales have told her about Titus breaking his ribs. So that kind yeah. of goes with. But the, also, like, he wouldn't
1: tell her. Yeah, I guess that's it. Has to do with his pride. Right. You know what? Everything has to do with his pride. <laughs> <laughs> the, real, the real villain of
0: this series <gasps> is Jen's pride. Something else interesting from these flashbacks that we picked up on was it says that as these fights picked up in uh, frequency, Edith had him moved out of the boy's dormitory and put him in the only empty room she could think of, which was the archive room in the library or an entry chamber to the library which that was interesting like they all of the boys we have to assume of you know, of maybe at least Jen's family but maybe more at their social level lived in a dormitory not like yeah the rooms, sons of is. nobles live in a dormitory at the palace I, I maybe that means that
1: noble families will send their sons to live at the palace yeah to train for whatever they're gonna do and that maybe their parents are not there and jen's father just happens to be there because he's so closely
0: involved mm-hmm. and it's also mentioned in this book that like his uncles and his aunts are in the palace too so like maybe they all just maybe the children live together as a way to save space because if Edith couldn't even think of empty rooms, like, clearly, I guess there's just not enough rooms mm-hmm. for everyone to get their own but
1: Yeah, it almost feels like collective child-rearing. Yeah. And, like, the kids don't have a whole lot of supervision. Yeah. Which is maybe why they can just beat each other up. Another thing that Jen does in this chapter is he defends Atolia, which maybe should have been a, a sign. <laughs> <laughs> He says she was within her rights to do what she did and that Edith had no business in her palace, which is technically true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You shouldn't have been spying. (laughs) And Edith, to whom he's talking at the time, is like enraged. She's so pissed. She's storming around. Yeah, and says. Of course, Atolia totally had no right. Like you're not just a common thief; you're a member of the royal family, and she's going to be sorry. And she
1: attacked Edith by attacking you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so there's more of individuals as representations of of collectives or nations or states. And another contrast between Edith and Atolia, which we've seen a lot and will continue to see. Atolia, if she's angry, she sits. If she's sad, she sits. If she were happy, she'd just sit. But Edith storms around and gets angry and and cries. We see her cry. And she can't do it in front of the public or the larger court. She tries not to. But once she's with her inner circle of, of people that she cares about, she does express emotion in a very normal way. As opposed to Atolia, who doesn't have that intimate... Family.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Everyone is her public.
0: Also, this idea where Jen says that she was within her rights goes back to one of the points we were discussing in The Thief, which is rulers have a different code of behavior than normal people. Mm -hmm. And how excusable is this barbarity as a political tool? So, also in this chapter, we get... Another hint of Atolia's unease over what she's done and her guilt is that at a banquet in the palace, she ate very little and the meat ambassador says, your thoughts seem elsewhere tonight. And she says, not at all. And it's just, it's like a, it's one paragraph, it's 10 sentences, but this is supposed to, we're supposed to connect the dots that she's fixating on this. But she's alone. Yeah. Like
1: Nahuseresh is there like, hey, what's up, honey? But he's a big meanie, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's chapter four. Next week, Jen learns to write again. We meet Kamet, our best future boy. Atolia secretly agonizes over Jen, and Nahusuresh acts like a man. Send
0: us your comments, questions, thoughts, tears collected in a tiny vial. Chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be, Be blessed, blessed in, in your endeavors. endeavors. Thank you.